0: Welcome to In the Midst, a podcast where we make room to sit in the midst of grief with others. I'm your host, Alyssa, and I am joined today by Ethan Linder. All right, it's good to be back. I am joined today by my friend, Ethan Linder. Ethan, you want to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, so... Uh I serve as pastor of discipleship at College Wesleyan. Uh specifically over the past years have been focused on college and young adult ministry. And so a lot of my experience relates to how emerging adults experience the church and ways that we can lean in to conversations around deconstruction, reconstruction and sending well. Um but the thing I'm most proud of is uh, that Sarah and I, my wife Sarah and I, are the parents of kids who are four, three, and one, and we have still survived over the <laughs> and thrived over the past uh, several years. Uh, and so, uh, really, the thing I think I'm most proud of in this season is probably the ecosystem of church and home blended. And that's not that's not always simple or easy, and yet it's like delightful and it's fun to see. Yeah.
0: Before I actually met Ethan in person, I got letters from Ethan. Um, I just knew his name written in pen on these little note cards that I would get throughout that first year coming back as a student um, after losing my dad. Ethan um, somehow, I'm sure it was a friend or good friend or family member who was just relaying to Ethan uh, a bit of my story and probably a bit of their story and how hard grieving was. And so Ethan, through college west um and the hospitality and the outreach there he would send me these letters of just encouragement and saying that the team had been praying for me sometimes there was a McCon gift card in there so before we formally met for coffee and just got to know one another and have continued to meet and ethan has become a great friend and mentor in my life um ethan was just practicing kindness and hospitality and was reaching out um at a time that i was really struggling and yeah it's cool to think now sitting here and doing this with you this podcast thinking about how we met and gosh i love the way that god does that just ties people together
1: yeah yeah it feels like um we have a few people at college church who are really good at paying attention and i think that's what uh, has discipled those of us who are around them right to see um there's more than paying attention to being in church and yet paying attention to one another, it feels like is one of the most crucial aspects, especially for people who are uh, lingering in seasons of grief, right? Like it's easy for people to not say anything because they don't know what to say.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And something that has consistently come up in conversations here is that Sometimes it's better not to say anything. Actually, sometimes what's needed is not words and just presence. And people who pay attention practice presence really well. And I Mm -hmm. think, in a way, getting those letters from you in that time, that was a way that you practiced presence. And there was no pressure to respond. Or, like, I didn't have to do anything. I just had to be where I was. And somebody was meeting me there and saying, I see you and I care about you. and, And here's an expression of that. And it was just super cool
1: yeah we try to keep a list of anniversaries uh, of those things like we have a, a small database i feel like that we end up returning to year after year of people who are going through seasons of grief or who have and saying like what does it mean to care for them well but that's especially true you're right there were people in your i guess general uh relational circle right yeah Who like knew you were in that season And said, here's how, like, the church might step in and, like, love this person well. And so that's a gift, too, right? Having friends of yours who notice mattered a lot in helping the church notice.
0: Yeah. Very cool. And so because of that, I think College West has been a place for me where conversations of grief and suffering and the heaviness of that have been allowed, Mm -hmm. and it's... They make room for it well, I think, and it's not something that they shy away from. And so I'm excited to talk more with you about what the church's role in suffering and loss is. Um, but before we do that, I would just like to hear uh, what is your earliest memory of grief?
1: Yeah, I still remember I was really young, I think. Um, and I think at the time I might have been the youngest one of my cousins at a funeral home in Delaware and then a church in Delaware uh, when my great-grandmother passed away. And I remember seeing people around me um, doubled over with this grief and loss and, and not really understanding much of it, right? There's part of it because I was probably, I want to say, somewhere between four and seven. I could locate the exact age. But I was really young uh, to process those things. And yet I felt like there was something important going on around me that I quite didn't have access to. Yeah. Right. Um, that's the That's the earliest memory of grief I have, but there have definitely been formative ones in church ministry over the past several years that have been tragic or untimely mm-hmm. or have ended just in ways that rippled out across the community that are different than that. But that's my earliest one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to know it's not the only one. Yeah. Yeah. So you do get to interact with a lot of different generations, but most of your ministry has been interacting with college students, and um, in all of those age groups, really, I just would love to know what are some commonly asked questions you receive as a pastor from those who are walking through loss.
1: Hmm. This is something like something people have asked me. I think pretty regularly has been, "What can I sort of expect from the church?" You know, huh. like. What is an appropriate expectation? Um, I think people who are going through seasons of grief tend to feel like they're too much, right? Like there, there's this feeling of if I show my real emotion, what I'm demonstrating is a lack of faithfulness to God. Yeah. Or um, what I, if, in my honest articulation of doubt about where God is in this? I'm sort of admitting that I'm functionally agnostic or atheistic, right? There's there's this anxiety over whether or not other people will receive what they share. Yeah. Uh, And among other people, there's pressure uh, internally and shame about articulating things. And so there's a question of whether or not they should share anything at all. Uh, And if any admission of need makes them needy. And so... Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's this deep question in people's heart, sometimes shared, sometimes not, of what can I expect from the church when this happens? Like what is an appropriate expectation? Should I expect meals to be delivered? Should I expect to have a conversation with a pastor? Should I expect a letter in the mail or or someone on my doorstep checking in? Should my small group be notified and start a meal train? Right. Mm-hmm. Like what is an appropriate expectation? And there's not really a, a default calibration for that for most of us in the church, right? Like most of us don't really know. We have this nebulous idea yeah. of wonderful community. But if you were to ask people what wonderful community means, you usually get a lot of different answers.
0: Yeah. What are some misconceptions that you've encountered that people have had about either the role of the church or the role that God plays in the middle of like their loss?
1: A lot of people... Th- have some question of um, whether or not they deserved, it, you know, Oof, right? Yeah. And so, part of what I'm noticing is a feature of evangelicalism. Anyway, uh, again, this is part of the theological family that we'd be part of, and any family has warts and frailties that it's wise for us to reckon with. And one of the one of the general white evangelical wrinkles is and the assumption of proportionality mm-hmm. the idea that mostly we get what we deserve right right uh, we ha- we see that bleeding in in our theology of hard work those who uh, don't have probably just didn't work hard enough we see that in uh, the general condescension toward the poor that can sometimes be there yeah. but it's also weeds its way into us in uglier ways around tragedy yeah right because we assume most of us get what we deserve and so there's must be something that we've done that caused us to be undeserving enough to experience a tragedy. And really what that is is a, people expressing a need for control, right? Yeah. Something's been taken from them. And they want to believe that if they could have just done something differently, if they could have just been better, that wouldn't have been taken away, right? Um, so that's a big one. Uh, that's wow. a big misconception. Yeah. And then another is that the church will do, uh, the church should do nothing or the church should do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just things that the church won't do as well as other entities, right? So I remember um, a person had a pretty tragic loss in our community several years ago. Uh, and I remember them coming into the church and having a conversation with pastors, and we were able to do some care. Uh, but I also remember one of uh, their friends coming and picking them up from pastoral counseling and taking them directly to a trauma therapist mm. that they had gone to years ago who did EMDR with them. Yeah. And uh, to me, that's a picture of the beauty of, of the church, knowing when to stand in the gap and knowing its limits, right? Knowing what we are as a supportive ent- entity yeah. who, can, who can share pastoral presence Uh, who can show up, right? It's not less than that, but it is more than that. Uh, And the more is knowing how to pair people with resources that the church can't provide.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that question of um, what did I do to deserve this or what did they do to deserve this? I think even the most level-headed of us in the middle of experiencing loss still find ourselves asking that in some way, shape, or form. I think it's good to recognize that some of that is due to the need for control because truthfully when you lose someone, you feel very out of control and that's why we tend to get a, like very hands-on and try to find something to do or don't want to do anything because it's like, okay, well, everything that I knew to be true is now tumbling and everything I had hoped for is now a little bit shattered and I'm just not sure what to do with myself.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a part of that that's probably good, right? Both self-preservation and also like this desire to reclaim agency, right? Like that idea that I'm in some control of my future because I can do this thing in front of me. Like that seems very human and like very delightful. But when we turn that in on ourselves to say, if I actually had agency, like I do have agency and that agency should have prevented this tragedy from happening, it can really be hard, right? But I remember the Mr. Rogers quote pretty frequently uh, look for the helpers, right? <laughs> yeah. Like that's a good expression of agency is to lean in and help other people and find one thing we can do. But a lot of this is the difficulty we face in identifying and looking head on at our own needs, right? Like experiencing ourselves at the level of needs, which is as Christians, we often frankly try to avoid and pretend we don't have needs. Yeah. Right. So for us to admit our needs, instead of just leaning in to help, can actually be a pretty interesting reversal that's healthy, yeah, um, but costly. And so we try to avoid it by those kind of control moves, I think.
0: Yeah. And I don't know where that fear stems from, like why we're afraid to admit. And you've called me out many times over the years of not admitting that I need something or asking me what I need and giving me the space to really think about it. And it feels risky sometimes to actually say out loud that we do need something. And I think commonly, those first weeks and months after someone has passed away, people ask frequently, What do you need? What can I do? And the truth is, the grieving person has. Probably no clue. And so it's figuring out like what are some basic things. It's paying attention. It's really what are basic things that I can do that it, it would be better to do something rather than to do nothing. Like dropping off a meal even if they've already got a freezer full of food. Like th- there was thoughtfulness there, you know. Mm-hmm. Or running groceries and dropping those off. Like there's thoughtfulness there even if the pantry was full. Like just being able to say like I still see you. Um When we talk about like different ways that the church can provide for people who are in need in this stage of life, what do you, what is the role of the church in the lives of those who are experiencing loss? Like what are some things that you have seen the church do to provide for the needs of those who are grieving very deeply?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing is to not lose them. Hmm. Um we can pretty easily give up because we're focused on the next thing, right? And this is true in a family and it's true in the family of God that there are priorities um, that pull us toward the next thing consistently, right? And so in our attempt to get everything done, we often forget uh, the last person who's still experiencing that because there's another tragedy that comes up and there's another event that needs to be pulled off and there's another thing that needs to be done uh, with often less resources and time than we think we can afford, right? Yeah. So uh, any organization or person who is finding themselves moving at a pretty aggressive pace, right, just consistently moving to the next thing and who's dealing with tragedies all the time yeah. can find themselves pretty numbed, right, uh, to the idea that they need to go back to that person who three months later is still really, really in the very beginning stages of grief. Right. Um so there's more to it than that, but there's not less than tracking with them. So one of the things that we've done over the past several years, and like we we miss things, right? Like there are consistent things we miss. But Judy Crossman, uh, who was one of our pastors for a long time, who was a professor at Indiana Wesleyan as well after that, um, just taught us to stick with people over time. And so we had a system, uh, as she and Pastor Alex Mandur, who just transitioned as well, like to Wesley Seminary, uh, both of them had essentially a document that they, and a big board of care they used to call it, that was like a surgery board uh, of people that they were tracking with over months. And here's when the last touch in was, and here's what they needed. And instead of saying, calling, calling that person and saying, let me know what you need, which can be really exhausting for a person whose mental resources are already going to all the apps they have running in the background in their life. Right. They're grieving. They're caring for their household. Uh, they're trying to prioritize getting sleep, uh, getting therapy, whatever they need to do, giving them another task to do to make them responsible for your way of caring for them Mm -hmm. can be pretty unhelpful, right? But just saying instead, uh, expressing that you will do something and saying, if that's not what you want, just let me know what would be better, right? So saying, instead of saying, let me know what you need, say, I would love to just pop over and cut your lawn this week. And if that's not what you want, let me know what would be helpful,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, committing to say, uh, like basically saying to them, um, you'll have to opt out of me showing up. <laughs> right. And honor the boundary if they really don't want you showing up, but do so in a non-violent, like non-anxious, not that requires nothing of them. Right. right. You could drop food off on their porch. They don't even have to come out. Right. You can write them a note and send it in the mail and they need to not respond at all. Right. right. Uh, and sometimes it's helpful to sort of rustle up some people around them who may not know what to do uh, and and quarterback the team for them. That's that's been a big thing for College Church over the past several years is quarterbacking teams of friends that are already in people's lives who want to step in but don't know how to coordinate together.
0: Yeah, that's really good. How do you guys do that? How do you get those groups together and what exactly do you train them or equip them with.
1: I'd love to say we have a great process for that. (laughs) Uh, That would be a great lie to tell. But I think at this point, like we do have trained care ministers and that's hugely helpful. So they go through an intense training essentially of how to be with people in tragedy and loss. So anytime there's a hospital visit, a pastor always is sort of, again, again, like helping train and mobilize those people. But they're a group of, I mean, it's its a lot of people in our church who yeah. have gone through training and have said, when somebody's in the hospital, I want to know, and I will claim that visit for myself. Like I will go and visit representing the church, and then the pastors will follow up. So I think first it's building skills into a core group of people who can think about the ecosystem around a person who's grieving, right? That's one Two is finding a competent friend in their group, right? All of us know competent people. The challenge is people who can use their competencies to develop a team uh, who cares for this person and who have the pace of life that allows them to stay in it with them, Yeah, right? So one, training. Two, identifying. And then three, um, encouraging them to share and checking in. Like that's the last step that's I think so for us, right? Of like, if this competent friend can identify some ways that this the, the primary griever and their family can be served and then can invite others into that, uh, then the, the need of the church is to check in and make sure that any holes are being filled and then to check in with the griever themselves and say, can we pray with you? The last thing uh, that I can think of right now although there probably will be more down the road that I'll regret (laughs) not saying. The last thing is to make sure you have a really good list of therapists in mind for various scenarios, right? Um, People go through all kinds of grief and tragedy, and therapy isn't exactly a one-size-fits-all, right? Right. And the relationship's really important. Uh, And so I think having uh, a really good referral list uh, and being flexible enough to think about who might pair well with someone and then if that initial fit doesn't work, repairing them again, tailoring it to the specific needs and remembering the importance of the relationship, that can be huge too.
0: In a lot of the conversations that I've been having inside of this and outside of this, there seems to be this stigma surrounding counseling. Like I am less than Mm -hmm. if I go to counseling. How frequently do you think we talk about counseling in a positive positive light within the church, and could we do that better?
1: Oh, we absolutely could do it better. I think um, we need to think of this as hygiene, right? Or, like, nobody has a stigma around an oil change, right? Right. But people feel uh, the pressure to be at peak performance all the time when what it actually takes to be at peak performance is to do regular maintenance, Yeah. right? So it's saying, my car needs an oil change, is not a moral condemnation of that car's inability to perform. Yeah, It's a statement of fact that if you don't properly attend to the maintenance, there will be unexamined things that will go wrong that will come out later. Mm-hmm. You can hide them, right? You can pretend they don't exist. And I think that's true of hygiene too, right? So uh, I think a lot of the way we do this is by seeing people we perceive as strong talking about their way of experiencing therapy, that helps a lot. That normalizing therapy is huge. But also talking about it as preventive maintenance, right? Mm -hmm. Going to the doctor doesn't make you sick, right? Right. So, And a lot of people are anxious really about therapy fundamentally because they have a great investment in avoiding themselves. And so they don't go to therapy because they know there are things that are wrong, but when they go, they'll be accountable for them.
0: Mm, That's good.
1: Uh, And that's the way we approach the doctor a lot too, right? We're not, uh, we're less afraid of the doctor than we are confronting what we already know to be true, but don't have vocabulary for.
0: When you were sharing about uh, Dr. Crossman and Alex and the way that they set up long-term care for people, Mm -hmm. um, I really love that you said that they, 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 talk about like the last time that that person was checked in on and they look ahead to see when are we going to do that again and that doesn't feel organic and natural and I think that that's okay like I I think to look at that it could be really easy to say oh well that's not genuine but the truth is like actually taking time to sit with people in really hard things and be intentional takes slowing down like we have to slow ourselves down to really be at, at at the same place that somebody else is in. And so it, I would say, would you say that that's, that's still genuine care, although it's planned out, it's, it's coming from a place of, I still want to be there for you, even three months out, even six months out.
1: Yeah. I think a lot of, a lot of our um, assumption about what really comes from the heart has been confused with spontaneity. Right. When what really comes from the heart is what gets done in our life. Yeah. Right. Like, and at our best, when, when what's in our heart is to care and pay attention, um, assuming that'll happen on accident is a little bit like just uh, making meals for the next month without thinking about when you're going to go buy your groceries. Yeah. Right. Like, there's something that will fundamentally be missing from your plate if you don't prepare in advance and set the ingredients in motion. And of course, there's more, right, uh, than just the discipline of checking in involved in caring and it being organic, right? Um, We lead our feelings, right? And so uh, the idea that planning negates the genuine feeling of care for that person is something I think that is fundamentally untrue, right? But uh, for most of us, planning is required in order to be present.
0: Yeah. I think it's good to hear that intentionality can be disciplined and because I don't think many people are naturally inclined to just look outside of themselves like really paying attention to other people and seeing the needs and being in tune that takes discipline like a lot of that takes leaning on the spirit and being in tune with all right, like what is, where is he guiding me and who is he illuminating that's in front of me right now? But also being able to practice like selflessness and say like, I am choosing to walk into this setting and look outside of myself and my needs and maybe like pay attention to what the other person may be needing.
1: Yeah. It's tremendous. And it's hard to do. It feels like, um, we often assume like people are like selfish, right? Like, um, and I'm realizing that's less true, right? It seems to me that selfishness is looking at another person's needs and saying, I'll get what I want even if mm-hmm. it damages them, right? I don't think most people feel that. Yeah. I think most people are self-centered, yeah. right? It's not that they see the other needs and they say, forget that. I'm going to do what I want. It's that they just don't think to look and pay attention to other people's needs. Mm-hmm. And that's a casualty, of a lot of our values, right? And that have seeped into the church often, right? This value of perpetual motion as importance, right? Uh, Wealth is not necessarily the currency of importance anymore. It's busyness.
0: Yeah. Yep. And the thing about what Dr. Crossman was doing was saying, I know that life is going to get busy and I know that things are going to come up. And here's how I'm planning to still make time and make room for this person. Because, because, Because from the grieving perspective, at least for me, right after my dad passed away, it kind of felt like I was standing on this like busy New York sidewalk and I had stopped moving completely. But all around me, people were still going back and forth to and from like their worlds were still turning and it kind of felt like mine had stopped. And so for someone to say like, yeah, I have to get from here to here still, and I still have this responsibility or this job or whatever, but I'm going to make time in my day to stop and stand with you in this place that feels very much like everything's come to a sudden halt and you just need to sit in the shock or sit in the heaviness or sit in the sadness.
1: Yeah. And there's often like, I think among the grieving person's perspective, there's this question of, did the death really matter? Cause everybody else seems to be moving along just fine. Right. And so pausing and saying that's normal is tremendous, right? What you've identified seems really, really rich and important. That, that There's a slowness and almost this feeling of, is anything else in my life even real right now, right? Like I'm focused on the absence of this person who has been central to my life for a long time and, and everybody else is moving along just fine. Like how do I make sense of the gap between my concerns of what happens in a day and what everybody else thinks is important that no longer holds the same value to me.
0: Yeah, and I think that fear of did it even matter or do I even matter doesn't come from like I need the attention from people. It comes from when you sit with me and you tell me two years out that yes this is sad and it's still hard and let's sit and honor that that makes me feel like it mattered and it makes me feel like it still matters and it makes me feel free to continue to grieve because this is a lifelong thing so it makes me feel when somebody comes three years down the line and says hey, this day is still a really big day, and I want to acknowledge that with you and not negate the fact that it's been three years, so I think you should be over it. Like, to allow room for the things that you need to honor in grief makes it feel as though it mattered, and it still matters, and it makes room for us to sit in the heavy things and not feel so rushed out of them. Because I think as Christians, at least in my experience, I did feel rushed. I feel like I had to rush out of it. And when people made room for me to grieve the way that I needed to and just to cry or to have a really hard day, that made me feel like, oh, I am free to sit in this place. Like I can just rest and not stay stuck here. That's important, is that the people who love me and are going to surround and support me, they'll sit with me there, but they won't allow me to stay stuck there. Mm -hmm. They'll teach me how to grieve in other ways, how to grieve healthily, like, On the two-year anniversary of our dad's passing, we were in the middle of COVID. It was stay-at-home order, and we were, like, a month into this. So there was a lot we didn't know about the pandemic. And at the time, it was super common. Online, we were seeing a lot of people doing these, like, parades for birthdays and they would get a bunch of people lined up in cars on the street of whatever whoever you know whoever's birthday it was and they'd drive by and they'd you know like throw confetti or have signs that said happy birthday some people would run out and like drop a gift at a safe distance um and I remember being woken up on April 30th by my sister and she told me to come upstairs and I walked outside and there were like Dozens of cars just lined up on the street and they had messages of encouragement, of affirmation, of love for us. Some people got out and just dropped off like thoughtful gifts, like just to say, we know that this day is really hard for you and we wanted you to know that we still see you even in the midst of this pandemic when life is super crazy and even two years out, like we are still just as around you as we were on the very first April 30th, on the day that he passed away, like we are still here. And I just remember sobbing in my driveway and just feeling overwhelmed by the fact that I, I, I didn't even realize that I felt like it had been forgotten and to see our church. And, and some of them were members from our community who we had gone to high school with and how they all got together. I don't know, but to look at the way that the, the people of God, the people in our community came together still even two years later, it was one of those instances where it kind of feels like it didn't matter and you're making room for the heaviness of this experience still even two years out and it was so kind and so thoughtful and one of the ways that sticks out to me of this question I ask continuously, I don't know how people grieve outside of the church, I don't know how people do that without the church and it's because in my experience, I've had really good church families who have surrounded me and my family, but that's not the case for everybody. Like, there are some churches who don't know how to do this well. Maybe it's because there's a lack of paying attention, but out of curiosity, what are some ways that you've seen the church fail to surround people in grief and loss and suffering?
1: Yeah. I think I've seen people fail in, in congregations, um, by not knowing what to say. So they just do nothing, right. Um, it can be really hard to ask someone about a dead relative or, um, or the loss of relationship with someone that they loved, even if they are alive, right. A broken relationship. Like those are just hard places to go in conversation, And sometimes we think in congregations that what we present best to each other is our strength, Mm -hmm. right? We don't want other people to experience us at the level of need. And so we pretend we don't have any, right? And so uh, I think we get so used to that that sometimes those of us who don't know how to engage with someone in their strength just choose to wait until the weakness goes away, right? Right. Right. And what they don't see is that there's a good bit of strength that they miss out on because they're not willing to walk into wounds, right? So we fail, one, by, I think, doing nothing because we don't know what to say. Or I think uh, we end up rushing to resolution, right? We say things, but they're based on our needs for things to be resolved instead of the griever's needs to be sat with, Mm. right? So we say God did this for a reason, which is one of the most deeply unhelpful things, Because uh, we don't know what the reason is, right? The person saying that is trying to bail emotionally and protect themselves from the tragedy and the illogical loss that this other person has faced. Yeah. And so they're focusing on their own needs. And so I think one of the antidotes to that probably is just focusing on why you're about to say something. That's good. It's just so simple.
0: Yeah it's another way to also handle awkwardness. Like I think a lot of the times why people don't say something or don't go sit with people in that is that they themselves feel awkward. And I think one of the other ways to get over that is by sitting and understanding that like the situation that you're walking into isn't about you. So there's no need to feel awkward. Like this is about sitting with them and What what do they need or what are they sitting in? And you're just entering that and sitting with them. Like it does not need to be about you feeling awkward or you saying the right thing because it's really not about you at all.
1: Yeah, and people usually aren't counting on you to explain to them what happened. Right. right? (laughs) Right? What they want is to hear, I'm with you. Yeah. And I've been impressed sometimes as the people I don't expect, right? Like we're talking a lot in congregations about the divisiveness around political things around theological things around uh ways of practicing and living out our faith of jesus in the beloved community right so we have differences and yet i'm just consistently impressed that some of the people whose political convictions i'm most afraid of are the ones that brought casseroles to me when my children were born yeah (laughs) (laughs) right or when a relative of mine who i was really close to passed away last year yeah and so i think there are ways that we can um be pleasantly surprised and pleasantly surprising by taking it upon ourselves to march through the awkwardness instead of forcing the griever to do it. Yeah. And saying, yep, um, just something as simple as literally, I don't know a person who's ever been upset by hearing, hey, like I'm with you. Yeah. And what you're going through is really valid. And I want you to know that you're loved and not going through it alone. Right. Yeah. Saying those words out loud to someone uh, will not be a misstep. Very often, at least it hasn't been with the dozens and dozens of funerals and grieving uh, people that our church has walked with over the past couple of years.
0: Yeah. And to clarify, this is this is very different than saying to someone, I understand what you're going through. Even if you had experienced grief before or, or big loss in some way that is similar, it's not saying I get what you're going through and I understand it. There is a time and place for that where you, if you have experienced that to relate, but to say that I'm with you is very different than to say that I understand. And that will get a whole different response. Yeah. And some, like, some of the most helpful things that people said to me it were, tell me about your dad. Coming into the thing Mm -hmm. and saying, tell me, tell me about who who has been to you, who was Landon to you. Like, let's hear stories about your uncles. Those were just ways that I got to talk about the people I loved. And maybe I cried and maybe I didn't want to talk at all. Maybe I shared some really lighthearted, surface-level things. But they were coming in, putting aside their need to say something and just being willing to listen.
1: Yeah. Yeah, curiosity really is one of those, like, key traits, isn't it? Like, I noticed the friends that stick around in my life generally have a defining trait of curiosity. Yeah. Like, they stay curious. They don't just assume that they know you and what you need, right? And. Then, you know, as most of us look back over the past month, we've probably done something that surprised us, right? Like yeah. we just surprised ourselves, right? So if we don't know ourselves, how arrogant is it to assume that we know what another person's going through? I don't <laughs> even good. know what I'm going
0: through. <laughs> like, I don't even know what I'm thinking about. It's <laughs> good. Um, so what are some practical ways that churches can begin to provide better for their people who are in the midst of grief?
1: I think making it really explicit what you hope they experience from you is really huge. Mm -hmm. So the big board of care uh, has become a little bit of like, it's kind of, it's a funny phrase. Right. And yet, like for us, we have a visible reminder of who it is that we're tracking within our congregation. And so we said there, there are probably more people that we could notice if we paid attention. And if we do, here's where we'll place them. And then noting who's walking with them through that, who is quarterbacking some of the other people's care? And, you know, who are they tethered to in community, right? And then identifying what does help and support look like to them, right? Like that's sometimes a question that's helpful for churches to ask far before a tragedy occurs, right? Churches are really good at responsive care. Yeah, um, I think proactive care is actually really helpful for moments when responsive care is needed, yeah. right? If you don't know how to support your people when their loved ones are living, it will be harder to know what support looks like to them when their loved ones are dying.
0: That's really good.
1: And so asking, that's huge.
0: Something I also just realized about the the care board in the long term, I had no idea. You never expressed to me that this was... So, I mean, not that it, it was genuine care, but that it had been planned out. I didn't know that. Like, every interaction that I received from people in College West was authentic and genuine and actually came at a time that I needed it. And so it's important in that, like, to be able to plan proactive and then, like, reactive to make sure that those interactions stay as organic and natural as possible because you don't want them to start to feel like they're a project. I've had someone referred to me as a project as someone that they were trying to fix and those words are so harmful and so to feel like in those interactions from people who are, whether it's lay leaders or pastors, that those those are still very natural. It's genuine care. And while the pastor may be planning for their own benefit because they have a very busy life and are involved in a lot of different things to be able to say, here's some times where I'm going to make sure I'm intentionally connecting, not making the grieving family or person feel like, oh, they're just doing this because they have to, because it's their job, because they're checking in, it's a homework, they planned it, like to not feel like a project to your pastors or lay leaders.
1: It's huge. And, and that's where the the upfront stuff, like knowing how to support someone uh, in general is really helpful, right? Like most of us in the congregation want to attend a church because it's an environment that sends us into our life to lean into conversations that we're already having with God, right? Yeah. And so churches that pay attention to the various dialects and the various gifts and the various contributions to that table, that we have in the people in our congregations can be really, really helpful, right? So churches, uh, who can ask their people, literally the question, what does it mean for us to support you hmm. is a great, great preventive measure for these things. Cause then, you know,
0: yeah. Yeah. And it's easier to a- answer those questions. Maybe, maybe it's easier to answer those questions before when you're in like a healthier state of mind rather than after, which is that proactive.
1: Yep. Yep. And sometimes people don't know how to identify their own needs. So you can ask them, what has somebody done for you over the past couple of years? that's just really spoken to you.
0: What are some ways that College West leaves room for conversations about grief or loss or suffering or just the heaviness of those experiences?
1: I think there's a lot of what what happens in church comes down to your vision of what the normal Christian life is, mm. right? And so it's not an uninterrupted climb, right, toward yeah. um, greater and greater things that get easier and easier over time. Christian life takes great effort, right, uh, for a number of reasons in terms of the disciplines we do and opening our life up to other people and keeping yeah. our selfishness at bay. But then also... Um, we need to have a normal Christian life that speaks of suffering as something that Christ did. And so I think one of the things we can do is to not shy away from those um, uninterrupted periods of Jesus' life where there were suffering and loss, right? Keeping that. And and instead of by the end of the sermon or by the end of the worship set, having come back up to some triumphant melody to say, there were substantial chapters of Jesus' life that probably felt to him like the whole book, right? He knew, right? He had greater perspective than we can in terms of eternity. But oftentimes, like people talk about past seasons of grief and say that was a really hard time. And that's all they say. Mm -hmm. So their one sentence feels for us like our whole life. Yeah. Because we have no other experience in that moment. And so I think opening up space to linger in the ways that Jesus abided in suffering or abode or whatever in suffering (laughs) and lingering with Jesus in his way of doing that and realizing that it's normal. It's not not because Jesus was undeserving that he died after all, Mm. right?
0: What are some practical ways to open up and make room for that?
1: Yeah, I think we in evangelical churches tend to lean pretty heavily into the pulpit as a way to do that. And I think that's valid. Right. But I think also like notice how triumphant Easter is and how little attention is given to good Friday. Hmm. Right. Like uh, we opt out of good Friday services partially because the pastor's really busy during Easter week and because there's pressure to perform to make sure new people stay (laughs) at your church, but partially because we just would rather not like if you're going to invest energy in something Uh, Most churches would rather do it in celebration than in lament, right? Yeah. Um, And so I think part of it is architecting space for people to to present their honest articulation of loss and know that God is with them and embraces that as a normative part, right? So services, that's one part. I think also grief-share groups can be really helpful, right? Like literal groups of people who are working through this together. Mm -hmm. Like I think I'm over and over again reminded that like there is uh, a substantial richness in gathering together with people who have shared experiences, but experiencing them very differently, right? Who have been hurt in ways that you have been and who are faithful in the ways that you have been uh, and also have had that not work out exactly as they hoped in terms of the loss they're experiencing. Um, So I think that's tremendous. So groups, I think services, and I think the choice of passages that we utilize uh, when we preach sermons, or another thing, right? So we tend to to look at uh, testimonies as um, as things that end up well, right? But there are substantial things in Scripture uh, of people who were faithful whose lives counted and had an outcome that was worth uh, living for the kingdom, but it wasn't easy, right? They experienced loss and were what the world would consider a failure, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe that's another one, really, is testimonies. There's passages, and then the last may be testimonies of people who are not yet out, right? We tend to do celebratory testimonies, right, where we're talking about this is what happened, but thank God that's over with, hmm, right? Yeah. Instead of saying, I'm going through this and right now looking for God. Ash Wednesday services are good times for that. Good Friday services are good times for that. Open up an opportunity for people in your congregation to share a written testimony, because that scripts it a little easier so you can batten it down open make day at the church is a little hard but i think open that up so that members of your congregation can share honest articulations of their loss
0: and i think i've seen that modeled really well in college west like when pastor steve was going through the loss of his sister and openly sharing with the congregation how hard that was and being able to see that he too was like exhausted and that he too was sad and that he made room for that. Like being able to admit I'm not yet over this is, and making room for more of those conversations is really freeing. I think.
1: I think so too. Yeah.
0: I love that you talk about good Friday. Cause when I, and, and just Easter weekend in general, like I think people who make room for good Friday and even Saturday, and allow for what those two days entailed and the pain and the loss and the grief there. I think people who make room for that can more fully celebrate Sunday and the resurrection because they've experienced the devastation of the loss, and I think that's true for Christians who are grieving and who know Christ and and Jesus is their hope and they have you know they, they know the gospel, there is that hope of eternity, but when they sit in the places where they just need to lament, I think it makes that celebration of who Christ is and what that means for them even more full because they've made room for the really, really heavy emotions and they've honored that space and not rushed out of it. And I think we as a church, I think we could do better at surrounding them in that and sitting with them in that and saying, I'm not going to throw hope at you right now because I know that you know that. Like, I'm just going to sit with you and honor this really devastating thing that has happened in this place that you're sitting in. Like, let's just sit in the valley for a second.
1: Yeah. I mean, we would all probably think it's a pretty bad look if we read scripture and saw some, you know. Guy coming up to Mary while she looks at Jesus on the cross and saying, it's going to be all right.
0: Right. <laughs> you know,
1: Like that sounds so dumb, right? And yet it's most of our posture when it comes to grief. Like, you don't know how this is going to turn out, right? Like, this is going to be okay. This happened for a reason. Um, Again, motivated by a desire to help and desire to defend ourselves against ambiguity. But I think realizing that sometimes there is the lingering space where we don't know what's to come and honoring that feels like one of the best services the church can do is to hold space.
0: What advice would you give to pastors who are listening and maybe feeling a bit of the pressure to do something now or are starting to get overwhelmed with, am I doing enough? What would you tell them about what it's like to be a pastor and be in the church and support those who are walking through loss?
1: I think there are a lot of reasons that people get into ministry, right? And I think one of them is to walk with people in times when others could very easily opt out, right? Whatever the church does, it buries people and it marries people, right? There are so many other functions uh, that are representative of the church's role in people's lives, but the idea that the church is the place that walks along with you in milestones where other people can't explain what's going on, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, whether that's communion, whether that's baptism, whether that's death, whether that's marriage. The, the implicit thing that that's emblematic of is that the church is a community of people who are meant to walk alongside. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, ministry is more than that for sure, but it's not less than that. Yeah. And so I think one of the invitations that I've received, so I can only speak for me, I'm not sure that I'm necessarily, like, overly qualified to give broad <laughs> advice, but I think for me what I've had to do recently is to list out literally everything that I'm doing right now and ask what would need to stop, honestly, right, so that I can step into the things that I think God cares about most in my life and in this congregation. And so I think for me there it's costly, right? There is a cost to this. It causes it costs planning energy, it costs time, it costs attention, and it generally can't just be cut off very easily. You can definitely have good boundaries in terms of care, but you can't just bail on a person. Uh, and so that's costly, right? That's yeah. legit. And yet I don't know anybody who's ministered well in Jesus's name who's regretted doing those things, mm. right? That's good. Uh, so I would I would say. Go ahead and evaluate what it is that you're doing in a week-to-week rhythm and what you would need to do to make space in your life for this, right? Yeah. While also making space for your most important relationships, right? Yeah. Usually we feel taxed because our values are not getting fulfilled in our job, right? So right. the things that we care about and that God cares about are not the things we find ourselves doing. And so I think one of the things is, is to put in the, the, quote, big rocks first to use a leadership right. cliche, yeah. right? To say, if this is one of those major commitments as is my family and the health of my relationships, then plan those things first. And then these other things can come behind, right? Preaching is huge too, right? Then it'll be another big rock probably for many people. But that's what I would offer. And you'll have to cut that down because that was a lot.
0: But No, that's good. And also, if it's not your forte, if this is just not how you're wired, recruiting somebody to be on your team who does that well, right?
1: I think so. Yeah. I think recruiting other people other people for sure. I think um if it's not your forte, then don't allow that to be a sentence. Mm-hmm. Right. That's an invitation, not a verdict. Right. And so I think um uh, if you're not good at it, just get good at it. <laughs> like this is That's something good. you can practice, right? Yeah. And if you don't like if you care about people, you can be good at it.
0: Yeah. That's really good. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and experience with me.
1: This is fun. Yeah. Love to be here.
0: Yeah. Good to have you.